Hey everyone, uh, this is a bit of an unusual unorthodoxy podcast because I'm putting up the audio from a talk I gave at something called the Faith and Reason Conference in Pretoria a few weeks ago. Uh, my idea in the talk was to to chat about art failure, the way that so much Christian art tends to fail to connect with reality, as well as the fact that what what we need art uh, to do is is to grapple with a deeper understanding of the place of failure in the human experience. I hope that you find this enjoyable, and thanks as always for listening in. Duncan Rabin, or Dr. Duncan Rabin, teaches in information design and visual culture at the University of Pretoria's Department of Visual Arts. He's also widely published in local and international journals, as well as a few books, the latest one being uh, Louis C.K. in Philosophy, um, that's published by Open Court, USA 2016. He is the author of the forthcoming Seeing Things as They Are, G.K. Chesterton and the Drama of Meaning. Um, soon to be a New York Times bestseller, um, Cascade USA 2016, and uh, his research deals primarily with theology and critique of ideology. He's a very controversial, very fun guy um, to listen to, so no pressure, Duncan. Let's give him a round of applause. Well, it's nice to be here. Um, I spoke at the Faith and Reason Conference a number of years ago and and was never invited back, so I thought, well, that didn't go very well. I think... Uh, uh, but, but it's nice to be back and, and I think they'll, maybe someone forgot why they didn't invite me back and, and this is, uh, it. You and I have something incredibly powerful in common. This will be the first time I'll be going through this, uh, and this will be the first time you're listening to this. So, uh, I, I've had such an incredibly insane week that, uh, it's been, uh, well, insane enough that I haven't been able to, uh, prepare this properly. But I, I think what I have to say will be interesting to you, uh, and perhaps a little bit spicy. Uh, you can figure out what that means in a minute. Okay, so I want to start with an image of a urinal. This uh, this is an artwork by Marcel Duchamp uh, that was submitted by, by Duchamp to the Society of Independent Artists in 1917 for an exhibition at the Grand Central Palace in New York. The society that it was submitted to rejected it outright because... This was a joke. This can't be art. It's, it's Duchamp, but you'll see on the, on the left bottom there, it's signed R. Mutt. So Duchamp didn't even sign it with his own name. It's a ready-made, so it's an artwork he didn't actually create, and he submitted it to an exhibition. So it was regarded as not art. In fact, so much so that it was disposed of, and the original was lost. Uh, lost to us, so it, it, it was regarded as garbage. But later, a very interesting thing happened. The same artwork, supposed artwork, became accepted as art. In the 1960s, Duchamp was actually asked to, uh, to make 17 replicas of this artwork. And a poll done in 2004, uh, which was taken from various art experts, critics, uh, academics, and ver- various um, art people from the art world, 500 of them regarded this as the most important artwork of the 20th century. And for some of you, you're already going, what on earth is going on? And I think a very important question needs to be raised. What made this shift from not art to art possible? In other words, why was this work, which Duchamp called The Fountain, which I just think is hilarious. Uh, why was the fountain garbage the one moment and then 
the most influential art piece of the 20th century, the next. To answer this, I actually need to ask another question. What makes a thing art? Now, this can be endlessly debated, and I've said, you know, you will all have opinions on what makes a thing art, but I want to refer to someone uh, that I'm fairly familiar with uh, named G.K. Chesterton. He says, art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If you, in your bold, creative way, hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. Very simple. Art is limitation, and this is the essence here. The essence of art is the frame. Now, most people think the essence of art is the artwork. But this is actually something that Duchamp was aware of. The essence of art is the frame. So Duchamp understood that what makes a thing art is not the picture, but the frame. The primary thing that gives the artwork its its legitimacy is the frame of the art gallery or the art world or just artists and what they think about it. it there's a bigger context that gives it, gives it its legitimacy. In fact, the art object gains its power, its kind of aura, because of a particular way of framing it. So it's, it's almost as if the art gallery is a sacred space. And the thing that, and it, when you put the thing into the sacred space, that's when it becomes an artwork. And I think this is very interesting. What, what made Duchamp's urinal slash fountain offensive at first was that it actually called the frame into question. It made people aware that the frame, this, this art world, this art gallery, that this thing, it's just a gallery. It's just a room. But it creates this aura around the artwork that gives it its power. And Duchamp was challenging this, and that's what's so offensive. But the art world didn't like this. Um, They didn't want the frame challenged, and yet they had to eventually accept this as part of that frame. It's and that's what caused the shift from not art to art, from, from garbage to most influential work of the 20th century. So I, I'm going to refer to uh, Slavoj Žižek, who's one of my favorite philosophers, and he, he says this, perhaps the most succinct definition of the modernist break in art is thus, that through it the tension between the art object and the place it occupies is reflectively taken into account. So I'll just explain that. So before, people would be obsessed with, no, it's the Mona Lisa. That's, that's, it's just so good. That's why it is regarded so highly. But what Duchamp is saying is, not really. Uh, we need to take the place it occupies into account. So Zizek carries on. What makes an object a work of art is not simply its direct material properties, but the place it occupies, the sacred place of the void or the thing. In other words, there is, there's really nothing to it. It's a void. It's just a thing in capital letters is from the Khan. It's this, this idea of this thing that has sacred allure, but there's really nothing there. We frame things all the time. And, and so we, we can take a normal human being. Next slide, please. And put a frame around that human being. We can put them on the silver screen. Or we can have 
tabloid photographers take photos of them. And suddenly a very ordinary human being like you and me becomes a celebrity. And a celebrity is an empty icon that we can fill with all of our hopes and dreams. But there's really nothing to celebrity. But we frame it in a particular way. We also frame cell phones. So it's something that Apple does very well. It's just a cell phone. I mean, it's great. Like, it's, it's really cool that you can text and you can be on, on social media and absorb your life into the digital realm. But it's just a phone. Apple makes it every, even the minor change that it adds to the next newest phone is, is put forward as this kind of godsend. Like, it's got rose gold casing. Really? That's the, like, you should get the iPhone 6S because when it's, you touch the screen, it's pressure sensitive, so it changes the way you read a text. It's just a phone, but it's framed in a particular way, and it gives it this kind of aura. Ooh, when you buy this phone, all of your problems are going to disappear. The crown jewels, as another example, uh, it's framed by the Tower of London and by high-level security, and it, cre- it becomes priceless. It's rocks and gold, and those are very nice things, but, but it's become more than itself because of a particular kind of frame. Uh, think of a band, another example. A band is framed by a stage, and if you're lucky, you get a VIP pass to go backstage and meet the band, and there's this, whoa, this kind of sacred allure to this thing. Uh, in a more sort of Christian context, we have church pastors and priests who are framed by a particular context, by communities and by a building and by the structures there, and they become somehow specially connected to God. But they're just like you and me. They're human in every sense of the word, and I think this is fascinating. So there are different there are different ways to create the frame. And I think this is very interesting. So we, we have mystery. As soon as there's a bit of mystery around a thing, then it's just amazing. There must be something there that when you get it, you're going to be fulfilled. Uh, there's security. So the Tower of London, high-level security. It's inaccessible. Uh, inaccessibility is very helpful. So, so the boss gets a kind of aura because you have to go through the secretary. Like, ooh, the boss. Um, just a human being. But, okay, there's this other thing. Rumors are also quite helpful. Gossip creates an aura around the thing. Uh, authority definitely creates an aura. And what I find interesting is that the stronger the frame is, it's that is when the object becomes more alluring. If you make an even stronger frame, you make the object more alluring. How easy is it to get to the Pope? Anyone? Anyone call him? Hey, Francis, what's up? But when you have an opportunity to meet him, and I mean, I think he's probably quite a groovy guy, seems like it. But getting to meet him, that's that's quite a, that's, whoa, the Pope. He holds a position that has been framed in a particular way. Thank goodness for once, like, it seems like he's actually doing a huge amount of good. And I find this really interesting. Um, it's almost, when you make something difficult to access, that is, it almost acts as an invitation. The prohibition, the thing of you can't go there, that you can't get behind this VIP pass, all of these things, 
that creates, a, that, that's almost the invitation. So the prohibition is the invitation. And this is something I'd like to explore a little bit through uh, a very unusual reading of the Genesis 3 story. So um, I understand that there are, you've heard a number of very normal interpretations. What I'm going to do is not that. So good luck to you. Okay, so there's a massive garden filled with trees. Okay, and what God does is he puts a frame around one of those trees. And he says to the people, you, you can eat of the fruit of any of the trees, but don't touch that fruit. Well, don't eat it. Okay, So there's a frame, and what the serpent does, the serpent comes along and says, notice the frame. He reinforces it. He says, but look at it. It's so appealing. It's so appealing. I know that God said, I mean, you know this. Like God said, you can't touch the fruit. Or you can't eat it. Sorry, I'm, I'm, that's actually a very fine distinction. You can't, can't eat it. And then Eve adds to that commandment. But what's interesting is by strengthening the frame, the serpent creates an aura around the fruit. It is presented as a kind of solution to all human problems. So you see this, this logic play out. And this is something that I want to, to look at uh, within the art world. Uh, the logic of there's a problem and then there's a solution. Ah, we're all okay. But what happens is when Adam and Eve taste the fruit, there is huge disappointment, right? It's, it's just not very fulfilling. <laughs> so there was a problem and they found a solution which was not a very good solution at all. The fruit was not all it was cracked up to be. And what's interesting to me is that the logic of consumerism follows this exact same pattern. You buy this thing and you will be happy. By the way, isn't that such an incredible picture of like what consumerism is? Check out Glowmail ads. Glowmail ads, the first, the first bit of the ad is your life is terrible because you don't have this ab flex or some, I don't know, some strange contraption. I haven't had a TV in a number of years, so I'm not sure what they do now. But, but the, the old pattern was it's black and white. The person in the, in the thing, just their life was terrible. But then they got the product. And then they are fulfilled. Okay? And what's so interesting about the logic of this is they say, look, you can, like the serpent, you can take this. You can buy it. It's only whatever the price is. It's super cheap. You can get it and you'll be okay. But we all know that when you get the thing you, you were longing for, it, it has a little bit of a buzz for a bit. And then afterwards, it's just like eating the fruit. It's disappointing. It's just a phone. So yeah, you had the buzz for a little time. Yeah, I got a new phone. And then you just realize that it was a myth. The, the, the product was not all it was cracked up to be. The only way to keep the myth alive is to, is to keep distracting the consumer. So you have two-year cell phone contracts, and you have sequels, and you have hype, and you have new improved versions of old things. Sequels, very interesting. God's not dead one, God's not dead two. There'll be follow-ups. Um, so there's, there's this like, the first movie was disappointing, or it was just a movie. But now you have to watch the second one, and that's going to be even better. And you listen to how sequels are punted. It's darker than ever before. It's more, it's more gritty. I don't know. The language is just like, what? Seriously, 
Um, if consumers are kept busy, distracted, engaged, maybe they won't realize that the frame is fake. Maybe they won't see that the sacred promise is really just a lie. If the frame is kept alive, people won't see that maybe the Mona Lisa is great, but it's just a painting. It's really difficult to go to, to get to if you're in the Louvre, but it's just a painting. Maybe the pastor in your church is the pastor who has an affair, say. It's just human. That, that's one of the things, by the way, when, when pastors do fall, to use Christianese, which is something I don't like doing, um, when they fall, everyone is shocked. Because they knew that he was human, but they didn't want to know that they knew that. It's, it's a horrific thing to discover what you already knew. The most incredible thing about WikiLeaks, the shocking stuff is the stuff you already knew. When Edward Snowden bragged about the fact that the U.S. government was bragged is probably a little strong, but anyway, when he told everyone the U.S. government is spying on everyone, the thing that shocked me was, I knew this, but it's horrible to realize that I was right. Okay, so... And this is very interesting because um, the, the same sort of logic, maybe, maybe if we're distracted by the, all the talk in Christian apologetics, we won't realize that the Christian apologist has just as much doubt as the atheist. But we want to keep the sacred allure alive, and I find this interesting. So what I want to put forward is, is this idea. Often we presume that Christianity fits into this frame. Um, that it, uh, but it, that it affirms itself as the real answer. That's the only difference. So there's this consumerist, consumerist paradigm of problem solution. And we assume Christianity is like that, but it's the real solution. Okay? So it's actually the real fruit of, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. But what happens if Christianity is the thing that challenges the frame? What happens if it is the problem to all your stupid solutions? And the question to all your narrow and shallow answers. And I think I'm posing this as a question. I'm not posing it as an answer. You'll notice that. Because I think we get so accustomed to a particular frame because we grow up, grow up and live in a particular culture. And this culture functions in a specific way. And we don't always notice that the logic that we apply to Christianity is exactly the same as the logic that we apply to everything else. It's the logic of the serpent. If you get this fruit, you will have the answer. And I just don't think that's true. And I think we need to, to raise this question. What I would say is that art that doesn't challenge the frame is art that fails. I've always seen that good art is art that challenges the frame. It's, it's the art that, that goes, well, yes, there is this, but maybe there's another way of looking at this. So Marcel Duchamp did this when he pointed out that the fountain, his work, is really just a urinal. And the gallery is really just a room like any other. And I think the, the celebrity Jim Carrey does this really well. He's got this thing that is often quoted. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so, so that they, they know it is not the answer. No, sir. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. (laughs) 
You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. One more time, here are the nominees for Best Motion Picture Comedy. That, if you want to know what a Christian act looks like, there you go. That, that profound challenge to the frame, and I think this is so important, which brings me to Christian art. Um, and specifically, I want to, to look at just the idea of Christian movies. I'll use some examples, but uh, for the sake of time, I won't go into extensive critique. Through the ages, a lot of Christian art has been fantastic. Okay, I'm not, I'm not dismissing Christian art, but I'm, I want to look at where we are now and what we're creating, and it's mostly awful. Um, and I find this hugely problematic. I, I checked out some film reviews of Christian movies, and here are some descriptors. A Christian movie is typically bad, unrealistic, cheesy, lame, boring, ideologically problematic, theologically and philosophically shallow, stupid, stereotyped, poorly written, unchallenging, insulting to Christians and to other people, prejudiced and moralistic. I had to stop because obviously uh, we have too little time to go through all of them. The, one of the problems that I have is that a lot of Christians I know don't even know that Christian films are bad after they've watched them. So, so that, but if you look at the critical acclaim of a Christian, the average Christian movie, you will discover the most disappointed people are the Christians who watch them. The real ones, okay? Not the, not the ones who, who pretend, who are, uh, just caught up in some kind of other ideological system. And one of the greatest problems I see um, in these Christian movies is very simple. They're dishonest. They, they don't tell the truth. They don't speak the truth. They're just um, ideological facades. So if you're saying that a Christian movie is dishonest, another way of saying this is that a Christ, Christian movies tend to be anti-Christian. Uh, they rely on a theological vision that excludes many of the realities of human experience. They use theology as a defense mechanism, in other words, as a kind of frame against reality rather than as a way of fully engaging with reality. And I want to use a very interesting example, which is God's Not Dead, 2014 movie, which misrepresents Nietzsche's philosophy in order to conquer their weird and distorted idea of Nietzsche. So they pick the one philosopher who truly rejected what uh, he rejected Christianity because he understood it. 
which is unlike most of the new atheists. They reject what they do not understand. He rejected it because he understood it. He thought that a religion that sought to serve and, and look after the weak was was not worth going after. So they pick that philosopher, misrepresent him, and then create very shallow arguments to conquer him. By the way, it's as I describe it. It's a movie based on a meme. That's the depth of philosophy of that film. It's based on a meme. Okay, that's dishonest. Um, and this has a sequel that's just come out in America. What? Um, to accept this kind of frame, I think this is kind of, there's also a tendency in Christian films to accept a kind of magical thinking. There's a great example of this. There's a movie called See Me Dance. By see, I mean the letter C. Okay? See Me Dance has a woman in it who converts people by looking at them. Isn't that the ultimate Christian fantasy? <laughs> that you can just look at people and go, whammo, brainwashed. Fantastic. And I think this is, this is so worrying. Um, they want to keep these, these Christians, supposedly Christian, uh, art products, want to keep the frame perfectly intact. And it's not a Christian frame, if you want to look at Christian theology. It's a consumerist problem solution frame. And we have to, I think, figure out um, how to get beyond that. So what I want to suggest is that Christianity is against the frame of the sacred. It destroys it. And if you want to go into massive lengthy discussions on history and anthropology, I will, I will be happy to do that. Um, Christianity at its core doesn't allow the creation of an aura. It is too honest to allow this. Even Jesus resisted this. If you look at his ministry, when he healed people, don't tell people was his response. Don't Look, I don't want people to raise me up as this kind of like solution to all your problems. Jesus is the question to all your uh, solutions. I mean, he asks, he asks 307 questions in the, in the New Testament records that we have. So he's constantly challenging this thing of there's an answer to everything. He doesn't do this. He, he, he keeps it back. So he doesn't allow the creation, creation of an aura. And I think if we want to look at a cruciform theology, a theology of the cross, and this was touched on in the last talk, I think it's so important. We need to understand that Jesus is a man who fails. He fails to convince those around him of his message, and he ends up getting crucified as a political rebel, as a misunderstood political rebel. Um, Jesus resists any sacred order that would be attributed to him. And even in his suffering, Jesus experiences solidarity with the atheists. This is something that I find Chesterton quite provocative in. He says, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus seems like an atheist. He doesn't exclude that part of his experience or our experience from his experience. So he's in solidarity. With us. So I want to bring up an image of the Holy of Holies. What's interesting is the Holy of Holies was a frame. Okay, it was a frame within the temple. It was actually a frame within a frame within a frame. So it was a frame, the Holy of Holies, within the temple, which was a frame of a particular kind of religious way, within the frame of Jerusalem, within the frame of Israel and the history of Israel. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain is torn. Now, I've seen a lot of images of this where the curtain is torn and there's this light. But there's a historical record of someone who saw the Holy of Holies afterwards and said these words, there was nothing behind the curtain. 
There was nothing there. Like the the frame created a distance between God and people that was never meant to be there. And I find that very fascinating. At the center of the cross is Jesus dying. The curtain gets torn and there is nothing behind the curtain. The aura gets destroyed. Um, Maybe the whole bell attached to foot thing, the whole... Uh, that whole thing. Maybe that was just a myth to create distance between God and people that shouldn't have been there. Maybe the frame that sets up a clear distinction between those who are inside and those who are outside is a frame that needs to be destroyed. Christians are still today very good at going Christian, non-Christian. I don't know how you can read the Gospels sincerely and still arrive at that distinction, that it doesn't make any logical sense. Um, At the center of the Christian story is a God who knows how to fail. But Christian art tends to fail to grapple with failure. Um, I do think, though, that there are Christians who do manage to do this. So I want to refer to a work by Andres Serrano. Um, It tries to be honest. It's a beautiful photograph of Jesus on the cross. It glows with a kind of unearthly intensity i don't know if it it doesn't really show up uh, that well on the screen but it's it's this really luminescent thing and so it kind of at first looks a little cheesy but serrano knew that the picture wasn't the most important thing because the essence of every artwork is the frame so this crucifix is in fact uh, immersed in the artist's own urine and it's mixed with urine the urine and cows Blood of cows. This work is titled Immersion and in brackets, Piss Christ. So now if you are recoiling, that's a good start. What's interesting is that this, and I'm, I'm posing this not as a solution. Please do not take it as that. I'm posing this as a question. And I'm going to pose a further question, which is provided by Andrew Hudgens in a poem that he wrote. Now this poem is, is, Perhaps overstated, it's a little bit too raw. But I want to read it in its raw form because I think we need this provocation. We need this question. If we did not know it was cow's blood and urine, if we did not know that Serrano had for weeks hoarded his urine in a plastic fat, if we did not know the cross was gimcrack plastic, We would assume it was too beautiful. We would assume it was the resurrection, glory, Christ transformed to light by light. Because the blood and urine burn like a halo, and light as always, light makes it beautiful. We are born between the urine and the feces, Augustine says, and so was Christ, if there was a Christ, skidding into this world as we do on a tide of blood and urine. Blood, feces, urine. What the fallen world is made of and what we make. He peed, ejaculated, shat, wept, bled. Bled under Pontius Pilate. And I assume the mutilated God, the criminal humiliated God, voided himself on the cross. And the blood and urine smeared his legs. And he ascended bodily into heaven. And on the third day rose into glory. Which is what we see here. The piss Christ in glowing blood. The whole irreducible point of the faith. God thrown in human waste, submerged and shining. What is obvious is that there are Christians who have protested against this work. Uh, So 
Serrano, the artist himself, received death threats, hate mail, and lost funding because of the controversy around this work. And it's a photograph, by the way. It's a photograph in a gallery. It's a photograph of this plastic crucifix in, in urine and blood. And so you don't see the medium. You see this glowing thing. And uh, in 1990, so the work was from 1987. In 1997, the work, work was attack, attacked with ham, a hammer by students. Uh, with uh, yeah, students. And in 2011, a print of the artwork was vandalized beyond repair. So it's, it shows you how loving Christians can be and how understanding they just attack people. Um, the people that opposed the work were Christians because Serrano had done a supposedly terrible thing. He had reminded people that God was once just as human as they are. And I find this so interesting. We are not offended by divinity. We are offended by Christ's humanity. That is the thing that people, when you start talking, in, as, as Andrew Hudgens in his poem does, or as Serrano is trying to hint at through the artwork, when we talk about his humanity, that is deeply offensive. Uh, to a lot of people. I find it uh, probably the most compelling thing about about the Christian story. So he told, what Serrano did here is he told the emperor that he had no clothes. The emperor was the frame. He said, look, you don't, you don't have anything on you. Kierkegaard calls the incarnation an offense. And here we have, I think, some indication of how offensive the incarnation was and should remain. Uh, But perhaps this offense, the offense of the fully human, is where good art begins. In any case, whether it's offensive or not, um, to your taste or not, and I'm, I'm not posing this as even an example of my ideal. I'm posing it as a very provocative question to the frames that we have uh, around what we understand as art. What it does, though, and I think what we need to be striving for, is it, it, it presents us with a picture of pure honesty. It's absolutely honest. There is no pretense. I think that art fails, Christian art fails, when it focuses on maintaining a particular kind of frame. But Christianity, I think, at its core, asks us if maybe the frame itself should fail. 